and amen. So um, I was uh, studying this uh, idea of famous last words, and so I got some people to send me some famous last words, and one of them they didn't have to send me. One I remember from the third grade. Think about this. I, I heard this quote in the third grade, and I never forgot that. I mean, that, think about how far back the third grade is for me. That's got to be like eight or nine years ago, right? That's like a long time. And, but I still remember uh, this quote, and it was by the American uh, spy, Nathan Hale. Um, and he, remember, he was going to be executed, and they said, he, said, uh, he said his famous last words, he's reported as saying as, my only regret is that I have but one life to give for my country. I thought that was so profound. I was like, man, I'd like to, you know, my last words, I'd like to, because you know what, the, you know what it is about last words? Last words, what they tend to do is that they tend to, in a very powerful way, codify the person's belief system. They, they, in a nutshell, you get the person's life or life's philosophy. But another thing that they do is that they can also, another person's last words can also give us direction and even inspiration to live in a particular way. But, you know, the only, the only last words are not only profound words. Some last words are tragic. I think of Chris Farley's last words that he yelled to a prostitute as she was leaving his hotel room, and he was ODing. He, she, he said to her, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. And then he died of an overdose. It's just tragic. But there's not just profound and ironic, um, tragic uh, uh, last words. Sometimes they're ironic. Uh, this last word was by the uh, famous uh, American actor that I've never heard of. I imagine he was a famous actor. And uh, his name is, and if I mess up his name, someone can correct me, Eric Morcambi. And Eric Morcambi got off the stage and said, thank God that's over, and then had a heart attack and died. Yeah, and so that's like ironic, right? You hear those last words and you go, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's, that's kind of ironic. And then there's funny, because I'm twisted, and uh, my, what I thought was really, really funny was um, Osama bin Laden's last words, uh, don't turn on the light. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was hysterical. Uh, none of you think so, but that's fine. Um, but my favorite last word, my very favorite last word, was by Groucho Marx. And he was responding to his, uh, his maid or someone like that and said, you know, you really are going to die. And he said, die, my dear? Why, that's the last thing I'll do. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's my favorite last word. I hope I'm at least that funny um, when I die. So, um, so we're, we're doing this series, and what we're doing this series uh, is on Jesus' last words. Jesus' seven words from the cross. Now, we want to study this because we're just at the precipice of Easter. We're in the season of Lent, and we're looking towards Easter, and we want to be reminded of Christ's great sacrifice for our sins. So what we're going to do is we're going to do the seven last words. Now, we're not going to do every last word. We're going to, you know, pick and choose. 
And we're going to have, this series is going to be this week, then next Sunday, then Easter weekend, it's, we're going to be doing these last words on Friday, a different one on Saturday, and another one on Sunday. So it's going to be really wonderful. It's going to be really great. I, I sure hope that you're there and uh, that you invite your friends because we really want to see Jesus glorified, not in your, only your life, but in the lives of your friends. Now, the thing about last words is just what we said. When you hear someone's last words, they tend to encapsulate their life in a phrase. And Jesus' last words don't uh, do anything different. But not only do they encapsulate Jesus' life, they do more than that. They inspire us. They inspire us to, to want to walk in Christ. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look into this series. We're going to read the scripture. Today, we're going to start with the very last words that Jesus said from the cross. And it was, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Now, you know why it's so important that you stick around for this series? And it's so important that we learn about Jesus' famous last words and then live in light of them. The reason it's so important is because one day it'll be your last words. One day, life will be over. There won't be any more tomorrows for you. And you'll have last words to say. And I don't want for you to live that moment in deep regret for what had happened before. But I think if we think of that moment, that, yep, I'm going to have some last words that I'm going to give, and I'm going to live in light of them. I'm going to live in light that there's going to be some last words that I'm going to say, so I'm going to live my life in Christ in such a way that's going to reflect and glorify Jesus. So it's... The, the series is paramount to us because we only do get one life on this earth. And I don't want your life to be filled with regret. I want your life to be filled with joy and satisfaction in Christ. So part of our uh, tradition in this church is to stand at the reading of God's word. We think he's wonderful and uh, We'll read his word together. So we're all going to read this together in a nice, loud voice. We're going to read on a count of three, okay? One, two, three. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When the, all the people who had gathered to witness this saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is God's word. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.
So we're looking at Jesus' last words. Now, let me give you a little, we're going to put on our thinking cap because I'm going to try to give you um, the passion or, or Christianity in a nutshell. Okay, so just bear with me. There's going to be um, some stuff here, not a whole lot of funny stories. Just hang with me. If this is new to you, um, great. If this is old hack to you, great. It'll be a refresher for you, and that's fine. There was a man who is one of the most important men who ever lived. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. His name is Jesus, right? Like, big deal. Uber important in history, right? Big, big deal. And so this man, Jesus, Christians believe, was God in heaven. This is what, now I'm teaching you uh, the, uh, the Christian faith. Was God in heaven. Came from heaven to earth, was born in a manger, and lived the life that you should have lived, but you didn't. And then died the death that you deserve to die, but you don't have to. That Jesus, God, came from heaven to earth because you and I were separated from God because of our wrongdoing. Now, nobody ever had to convince me of my wrongdoing. I am very well acquainted that I am a wrongdoer. And so, uh, God saw that and he knew that the only solution to our wrongdoing was to pay the penalty for that wrongdoing. And that penalty is internal separation from him. It's called hell. Awful. God so desperately didn't want you to go to hell, so desperately didn't want, to be, didn't want to be separated from you for all of eternity, that God came himself and paid the penalty for your wrongdoing. That is amazing. Dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and ascending to the Father, Jesus does, saving us, paying the penalty, exchanging for us our sinfulness with his righteousness. Now that's what Christians believe. But you, you're sitting there and you go, come on, man, really? God on earth, rising from the dead, really you believe that? And I do. I really do. But even if you don't believe that, the, the fact is, is that there was an uber important guy named Jesus who lived in Galilee about 2,000 years ago. Now, nobody argues this. Nobody does. Only people who are uneducated say things like, well, how do you know Jesus was alive? How do you know Jesus was ever on earth? Nobody ever says that in a debate. In a debate uh, between, you know, like theologians or in a debate between uh, people about the historicity of Jesus, nobody, you know what? If you don't believe that Jesus actually lived on this earth, then you want to keep that to yourself because you look very, very silly in front of any educated people because you'll, make, you'll be made fun of. Even atheists who don't believe in Christ admit that Je there was a Jesus, a guy from Galilee. Who be now, here's the thing. This Jesus was uh, born, lived in Galilee. He claimed to be the Messiah. Again, I'm not talking about faith here. I'm talking about history. He claimed to be the Messiah, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and then after three days, his body was no longer there. His body was no longer there, and his disciples claimed, and this is all, you don't need any faith to believe this. 
This is all fact. We don't even need the Bible to believe this. The enemies of Christ and the enemies of Christ's followers reported that this is what the disciples were saying. So people who, had, who wanted nothing to do with Christianity said, hey, his, his followers, his disciples, are saying that he rose from the dead after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. They were saying that. So you don't have to have any faith to believe what I'm saying, that there was a man by the name of Jesus, lived in Galilee, uh, said that he was the Messiah, was crucified, in other words, given capital punishment because he was uh, 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 under Pontius Pilate, and he died, and then nobody knew where his body was. Now, here's the rub, and this is why what we're reading is so important. Because Jesus' followers said that they saw him after he died. Someone say, after he died. If you see me before I die, that is nothing unusual. If you see me after I die, that is something to write about. Okay? So they saw him after he died. They said that he rose from the dead bodily. Not just spiritually. They saw that he physically ate fish with them, that he uh, uh, approached them, spoke with them, that he had a physical, that he was touchable. He had a physical, not just spiritual body. Well, the reason that that's important and the reason that what we're about to read is so earth-shaking is that these guys died <coughs> saying that Jesus rose from the grave. And you go, <coughs> what's the big deal about that? There's a lot of people who die for what they believe, right? Just a, uh, a few years ago, we had a few guys drive planes into really big buildings. Just a few. Listen, all the time it happens uh, at some part of the earth where somebody straps bombs to themselves and for what they believe, blow themselves and other people up. You go, big deal. That's happened throughout all of history. People have died for what they believed. Here's the rub. These guys didn't die for what they believed. These guys died for what they said they saw. Now, this is a huge difference. Because they died not for what they believed. They died for what they said they saw. So if they're because if I say, hey, um, I saw Jesus rise from the dead, then I know if I'm lying or not. Because I'm saying I saw either I saw him or didn't see him. Now, here's the thing about a lie. You can go, oh, but they were lying. All right, that's rough historically to connect with what actually happened because they didn't just say that Jesus died from the dead. They were murdered for saying Jesus died from, uh, uh, rised from the dead. Think about that for a second. In other words, there are only two major reasons why people lie to get a pleasure or avoid a pain. That's the only two reasons people lie. Ladies, have you ever had a man, that's not your husband, say, I'll love you till the end of time. I'll love you forever. Or I'll love you, or, you know, carve your name in a piece of tree and say, you know, Joe and Louisa forever. Like, you know, did you ever have somebody do that right, right? And are those people still around? No, they're not around. Of course not. Why? Because they were saying, why were they saying that they were going to love you forever? It's a lie. Why were they saying that? Anybody know? It's not a trick question, class. Come on. You go work with me. They wanted a pleasure, 
right? Okay, now watch this. There's another reason why you lie. To avoid a pain. Let me tell you a story, and it's, and it's full. I'm not the hero of this story. I'm full of shame. Not full of shame. I have Christ, and he's washed my sins away. But I walked with shame about this instance. You know how, like, you have major instances of shame in your life? This is one of mine. Major. Big, big skeleton in my closet. I was about, I don't know, five, six, seven. I don't know. But I was really young. And my brother, who's like four or five years older than me, took me outside to the backyard to play. Well, we were playing outside and having a good time. But as, you, you know, as some of you know, in Brooklyn, you have backyards. You look out the window in the corner from the kitchen. You can't really see much. The building blocks the rest of it because the bathroom was like that. And, and so my father must have looked out, and he didn't see us. So after hours of playing, he came back upstairs, and my father said, where were you guys? And my brother said, truthfully, we were outside in the back, in the yard. He goes, no, you weren't. Yes, we were. We were totally in the back. We were in the yard. We were playing. And my father's voice started to raise. And then and, and we, we kept to our story. No, Bob, we really were in the back. We were out there. And it got more intense and more intense. And then my father took out his belt. I don't know about your father's belt, but my father's belt was like 120 feet long and around 13 feet wide. Yeah, it, it was just one of those, and it had like spikes coming from it with blood dripping from it. It was like one of those uh, belts, right? And so I was terrified. He took out his belt. He wrapped it around his hand, and he came up to me after some intense interrogation. He said, Edwin, if you tell me the truth, it won't go bad for you. If you tell me the truth, it won't go bad for you. And I looked at him, and I knew the truth is not what he wanted to hear. Like I was, I might have been six years old, but I got this story right here. I figured this one out. This cat, the last thing he wants to hear is the truth. He wants to hear what he wants to hear. And so I told him that we weren't in the yard. And my brother got the beating of his life that day. And the reason I say it was a moment of shame for me is because I could still remember decades later, him, my brother screaming, Edwin, tell him the truth. Tell him the truth as he's being beaten with this belt. I mean, he looked like Denzel Washington in that slave movie. Remember when Denzel Washington takes off his, it's like, it was like bad. It was like bad. Wow. And yeah, right. And I'm your pastor. You're like, man, that's a bad, that's a rotten thing to do. I know, but I got Jesus. Here's my point. My point is, is that even in the truth, when you're confronted with a consequence, you're likely to fudge the truth to avoid the pain. But the disciples didn't. Disciples stood before the big poppy with the big belt, and they said, the truth. Jesus died and rose on the third day, and you could kill me, and it'll still be the truth. They didn't die for what they believed. They died for what they witnessed. And that changes everything. Well, because that's true, because they died for what they believed, I happen to believe what they believed. I go with the guys who died claiming they saw Christ risen from the dead. My prayer is that you do too. But they then got their story down into writing. And so as they chronicle Jesus' life, Luke, who visited the eyewitnesses, wasn't an eyewitness himself, but visited the eyewitnesses and investigated them, 
says on the very last, in the very last moments of Jesus' life, what we're about to read, or what we just read, is what happened. Here's what it says. The, the, the scriptures say in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now look, if darkness ever comes uh, around from noon till three in the afternoon, something real serious is happening. So, you know, that's not normal. Noon to three, even winter time, is, unless you live in Alaska, right, is a very bright, sunny time of the day. Now, this is not a scientific statement. Luke is not giving us exactly how that happened. We know it couldn't have been an eclipse because it was the full moon. Passover is associated with the full moon. You can't have an eclipse when you have a full moon. God can do anything, but probably not likely. If we're looking for a common uh, uh, a natural thing that caused the darkness, it's probably not a full moon. So it could, it could maybe be a sandstorm. That could have created darkness. Or it could have been an immensely cloudy day. That could have created darkness. But Luke is telling us something that naturally happened that was pointing to something supernatural. Luke was telling us that darkness had covered, but this was a darkness that was more than just a cloudy day. This was a darkness to reveal the darkness of sin that Jesus was receiving in his body the punishment for your sins and for mine. The punishment for your shame and for mine. The punishment for your wrongdoing and for mine. This darkness covered over this part of the land. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple tore in two. This, again, is a natural thing that happened. We don't know how it happened. Was it an earthquake? We don't know. But what happened to rip the, 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 the temple um, curtain? We don't know, but we know that it tore. And Luke is pointing to that tearing of the curtain, a natural thing, to a supernatural event. See, here's how it worked. Now, put your thinking caps with me. We're still going to think through this. So here's Jesus. He's dying on the cross. But Jesus is a Jewish Messiah who's not coming into history in a vacuum. He's coming from a history of Jewish tradition. Well, in Jewish tradition, they had this incredible temple. And on this temple, I was, I've actually been on that mount uh, not a year ago. I was just recently on the mount in Jerusalem. And they now have a, a Muslim uh, uh, mosque there. It's called the Dome of the Rock. In Aramaic, it says, there, it's, it's pretty anti-Christ. Um, it, it says, God has no son. Uh, all over, like that, that just wraps around. God has no son. It wraps around, it's an Aramaic. It wraps around, so it's pretty anti-Christian. But the point is, is that where the temple once stood, now the, the Dome of the Rock now stands. And so where, if you could imagine the temple standing there, uh, it had the court and it had this place called the Holy of Holies and then it had the Most Holy of Holies or the Holy of Holies, Right? And so it's the, holy, it's, the temp, it's the temple court, the holy place, and the, most, uh, the holy of holies. Now, why is this important? Because the only time you went into the most holy of holies, the only time you went into the smallest part of the room was one time a year. And you couldn't go. Only a priest could go. 
But a priest couldn't go unless he had shed innocent blood, the blood of a lamb. And if you go, that's terrible. Why would they shed the blood of an innocent creature like that? Good. I need you to hold that thought. Remember that. They slice the throat, they take the blood, and they sprinkle it on the altar. The altar representing God's presence here in the world. So one time a year, the priest would come with the sin of the people, as a representative of the sin of the people, uh, spread blood, and God would uh, save, God would forgive, God would atone, and that's how it would be. Now think about this. This big, thick, like foot-thick curtain, it would never open. And yet Jesus is on the cross and it tears. Foot-thick curtain. Think about the telephone book being torn in half. Try to tear the telephone book in half like that. Only thicker. From top to bottom. What was Luke saying? Luke was saying that now there's not a priest who represents us, who, uh, whose lamb, an innocent lamb dies for our sin once every year. But there is an eternal son of God who is God himself, who is the lamb of God, who sheds his blood for our sin, but not for a year, for an eternity. And he's saying that no longer do we need to go through the temple um, curtain. We need to come to Christ that he is now the way to relationship, to forgiveness, to removal of shame, to removal of guilt. This is an amazing thing that Luke is saying. Then in verse 46, we hear Jesus, his response, or, or Jesus' um, exclamation. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And these are the words that we're going to focus on. Now, here's the thing. Jesus takes a verse from Psalm 31.5. That's what this is a quote from. 31.5. To express what the psalmist was going to do in life is what he was going to do in death. That he was going to give his his last breath, that he was going to trust his ever after to the Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, let me tell you why this is important. Remember what we said at the very beginning? Do you remember that we said that, um, that uh, last words have a sort of a fascination to people and partly because they uh, inspire and uh, other parts because they really codify the life of the individual? Well, this last statement does both. It composites the way Jesus lived his life in the hands of God. And then it inspires us because here's the thing. We all put our lives in the hands of something. All of us turn our lives over to something. I don't know what your thing is but you, turn, you live for something. You, you might say it this way. You know, that's my heart, meaning that's my life. You might, say, you might think of it to yourself that, man, if I ever lost that, I would die. Or you might say to yourself, if I ever 
got that, that would really be joy and happiness for me. But you give your life to something. There is something that you give your life to. And the worst thing that you could do on this earth while you're alive is give your life to something that will expire. Give your life to something that won't last. Beloved, God wants you to put your life in God's hands. Because only He is eternal. Only He is valuable. Only He can, can make your life count. After Jesus says this, He says, when He said this, He breathed His last over. Then, verse 47, there are three responses. Three responses to Jesus' final words. There's the centurion response, the crowd's response, and the disciples' response. Those are the three responses that we see. The centurion, the disciples, and the crowd. The centurion, the crowds, and the disciples. Let's look at the centurion. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Now, this is an odd thing for a centurion to say for a couple of reasons. Number one, this, his business is death. He's a, he's, a, he's a soldier. He sees death on the field, and he carries out executions. This guy, if he's a centurion, probably means that he's been experienced in death and battle. This is something that he's accustomed to. So why would seeing Jesus evoke such a response from him? Because there's nothing like seeing people die. Have you ever seen someone die who wasn't sure about where they were going to go after they died? They, they can be hysterical. I mean, if they're not sufficiently drugged, they can be absolutely hysterical on their deathbed. If you ever see people um, you know, on their deathbed or about to be executed, they're cursing they're struggling. They're, this is not a kind response. Jesus died. Jesus gives us a great example of how to know how to die. The centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Now, I don't know if this was believing faith, but it's awfully close. He took a step closer to Christ. He's like, wow, God, you're amazing. This guy was righteous. And I wonder if he didn't firsthand tell Luke uh, about this account. Hey, I was right there. I was that close because he was a believer by that point. Secondly, there's uh, verse 48. When all the people, this is the crowd, when all the people who gathered uh, to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Now, these are the, this is the group of people who were the same ones who said, crucify him, crucify him. And then, in fact, um, saw the way he died, and they left beating their breasts, meaning they left mournful. They left thinking to myself, man, this was a bad thing to do. We shouldn't have done this. But that's it. You know what they do after that? It doesn't say in the text, but I imagine that they go back to business as usual. They get ready their Passover meal. They move on. There's nothing that changes. And you know, that's, some, that's exactly how some people respond to Christ. 
They see Christ. They go, oh man, you mean Christ died for the things that I'm ashamed about? Christ died for the things I feel guilty about? Christ died for the, the wrongdoings that I've done? You're, you're saying that Christ died for that? That's amazing. That's so wonderful. That's so cool. And then they move on and it doesn't change them or affect their lives at all. I don't want that to be you. Don't let that be you. And then there's the third group. And it's in verse 49. But all of those who knew him, these are the disciples, including the women who had followed him from Galilee. I love that little caveat. Including the women. Ladies, you should know this. Every time the Bible mentions, the New Testament mentions the women who followed Christ, it's always in a positive light. This cannot be said for the disciples who followed Christ who were men. They look very foolish sometimes. Some of them run without their clothes on to escape from being uh, connected with Jesus. Some of them deny, them deny Jesus with their voice. All the disciples broke out on Jesus in his time of need. They all went to sleep. Um, we see over and over men messing it up. But every time we see women in the New Testament, we only see them elevated. Now, the reason that I bring that up is because some of you, you go to college and, and, and some of you have heard professors say things like, you know, uh, Christianity is not a viable religion or a viable uh, theology or a way of life because it oppresses women. And the fact is, is that the person who says that is not a, is not a student of societies. Because the fact is, anywhere on this earth where Christianity had great influence, Women fare better than they do in the places where Christianity had no influence. You don't believe me. Europe. Europe is a thoroughly non-Christian uh, 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 continent. Thoroughly, like especially if you're talking about England and London, and you're talking about that. Thoroughly non-Christian. Very, it's like, the percentages are staggering, single digits. Awful how few Christians are around there. But women fare better there. Why? Because Christianity influenced a great deal throughout the centuries. Enormous amounts. Now, go to, go to some Muslim country or Hindu country or Buddhist country. Go to any other country and compare the way those women are treated in those countries and the way they've been treated in countries where Christianity has influenced society. I'm telling you, women fare better 100 times out of 100 in the countries where Christianity so, uh, has been influential. So the way, I love when he says that. The women who followed, but all those who knew him, including the women who followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So the third response is the witnesses who see what Christ is doing and marvel at it and witness what Jesus is doing. But there's a, there's a fourth response. And the fourth response is yours. What's your response? Here's Christ who lived for you. And what I mean by that is that your sin, your wrongdoing separated you from God. God is holy, perfect, and pure. God cannot be around sinful. 
And you and I are full of wrongdoing. You go, no, that's not true about me. Uh, let me have a five-minute conversation with you. I know, I know, I know, because you know what it is? We tend to think we're not wrongdoers in comparison to super wrongdoers, right? I never, ever commit, especially in life. I just, like, when I think about myself, I never compare, like, you never hear anybody say, you've never heard anybody say this. Um, you know, it's, you know, I'm a good person. I've never, you, you've heard people say, I'm a good person. Um, I've, it's, I've never killed anybody. I'm a good person. You've heard people say things like that. But here's what you've never heard people say. You know, I, I live like Mother Teresa, sacrificing all I have, giving all I have to the poor, spending my life so that others could live. You never hear anybody say that, right? Why? Because they'll never want to compare themselves to Mother Teresa. They'll always want to compare themselves to a murderer. Why? Because we always want to make ourselves look better than we are. But the fact is, you've lied, haven't you? Yeah, right, right, right. You've lied before. So have I. You don't have to act. And if you say you, don't, you haven't lied before, gotcha. You got one right there. That's a lie right there. You know you've lied. No, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. You don't think of yourself as a liar, but how many lies do you have to say before you're considered a liar? And, and, and listen, if, you don't, if you're not sure what the number is, how many people do you have to murder before you're considered a murderer? Just one. Just one. And you go... Yeah, yeah, all right, but that's lying. But I'm a good person other than that. Well, yeah, all right. Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Once? Twice? Today? Right? Okay. Right. The Bible, that's the fifth commandment. Honor your mother and father. Have you ever looked at someone and undressed them with your eyes or lusted after them? Right? Every 12-year-old boy and older says, oh, boy, I'm in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, you are. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus says, when you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery in your mind. Could you imagine that? Here's the point. You and I are separated from God's holiness and perfect. You're good in comparison to me. But you're not good in comparison to God. If you compare yourself to me, oh my gosh, you win because I'm the worst sinner in this room. Easy. But if you compare yourself to God, you realize how far you fall from perfect. And so we're looking at Jesus' life, and he died because you're a wrongdoer, and I'm a wrongdoer, and he didn't want to be separated, but he couldn't be, have a fellowship with wrongdoers. It's, it's, like, it's like a woman trying to stay clean during a mud storm with her wedding dress. That wedding dress is not going to be clean during that mud storm. Jesus is holy, perfect, and pure. He can't continence sin. And so God is holy, perfect, and pure. couldn't continence sin. So it was either eternal separation or eternal union, but somebody had to pay the penalty for the sin. And Jesus says, I'll do it. And so on the cross, he dies the way he lived, with his life in the hands of the Father. And he says, and we say, and I say to you right now, whose life are your hands, uh, whose hands are your life in, or is your life in? Whose hands? Like, is it in, like, what, what's your hopes and dreams? Is it in money? Is it in achieving a particular goal? Is it in a philosophy? Don't put your life 
in the hands of something that will expire. Don't do it. It's not, listen, you were meant for forever. Don't put your life into something with an expiration date. Jesus died on the cross saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And my prayer is that you would say today, into your hands I commit my spirit. That your life would be a life lived in Christ. Now, in about five minutes, again, we're preparing our hearts for Easter. So if you're here and you know Christ, you can pray for those who are here who don't know Christ. But if you're here and you've never committed your life, your spirit, your put your life in the hands of Christ, if that's not your story, you're going to have an opportunity in about five minutes to do that. Now, what am I saying when I say commit your spirit into the life of Christ? Well, it's simply this. It's that you confess, you agree with Christ that you have done wrong. And again, I don't think I have to convince you that hard about this, right? I mean, do you need convincing? Probably not. You know you've done wrong. It's the things that you feel ashamed about. So it's confessing that and believing that he forgives. Secondly, it's resting in Christ. It's confessing and it's resting. Saying, Jesus, I want you to send the Holy Spirit to live inside of me, to lead me and guide me for your glory. That I'm no longer going to be the shot caller. Money's not going to be the shot caller anymore. Food's not going to be the shot caller anymore. Addiction's not going to be the shot caller anymore. That um, uh, uh, my sexual identity is not going to be the shot caller anymore. What's going to be the shot caller in my life is going to be Jesus. So it means confessing the things that I've done and asking Jesus to forgive that, believing that he forgives. Secondly, walking, resting in that Jesus lives in me in the Holy Spirit and will lead and guide me. And thirdly, trusting that Jesus uh, is making a place for me in heaven and that I can put my trust in him. Whose hands are you in? Because all of life boils down to whose hands are you in? Listen. I got this from a pastor that I can't remember his name, Kenneth Ulmer. What I'm about to say, I got from Kenneth Ulmer, and you could look it up. But he said this. He said, you know, if you put a basketball in my hand, that basketball is worth about 19.95. But if you put that same basketball in Durant's hand, well, that basketball is now worth millions. Right? You take a, a baseball bat, and you put it in, all right, I'll go with Jeter. I know he retired, but I don't know sports, so I'll go with Jeter. Um, if, if you take a bat and put it in my hand, it's a dangerous weapon, right? <laughs> but if you put it in Derek Jeter's hand, if you put it in Derek Jeter's hand, then it's all sorts of records and World Series that are won and, and celebrate and, 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 and wonder for an entire city. Because it all depends on whose hands it's in. If you put a tennis racket in my hand, at best you have an expensive fly swatter. 
<laughs> but if you put a tennis racket in the in the, uh, the, 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 what are the sisters called? Sabrina and Vena, the, the Venus? Williams, Williams, Williams sisters, then you have champions and great inspirations for youth. Uh, because you know what? It's the same racket, but it all depends on whose hands it's in. You put a golf club in my hand, and I suspect that you ought to duck, right? <laughs> but you put a golf uh, club in Tiger Woods' hands, and you have a PGA, PGA uh, champion. You have a person whose millions of people look up to in the, in the golf world. Because it all depends on whose hands it's in. Now listen to me. You put nails in my hands, and I'll maybe build you a birdhouse. But you put nails in Jesus' hands, and it means a sacrifice for your sin, atonement for eternity, salvation for the whole world, because it all depends on whose hands they're in. You put my life in my hands, and you maybe got 70 or 80 years. Life lived sometimes poorly, sometimes well, but it's no big deal, one that'll be forgotten in 100 years. But if you put that same life in Jesus' hands, there can be generational and eternal significance in the lives of the entire broken world. Because it all depends on whose hands it's in. So whose hands are you going to put your life in? Now, if it is Jesus, in about one minute, I'm going to ask you to stand. And what you, when you're standing, what you're saying is, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins, forgiving them. I also believe that you will live in me, in the Holy Spirit, and that I can trust you and rest in you and, and find strength and joy, even in the darkest times and the greatest sufferings, while tears are rolling down, of pain are rolling down my face, I can trust that you're with me and you'll never leave me or never forsake me. And I can look forward to the future. I can look forward to knowing that no matter what this world throws at me, one day I'll have Jesus and that will be heaven for me. Now, in about 30 seconds, I'm going to ask you to stand to confess all of that. Yes, Jesus, I want my life in your hands. That's what you're saying. You're saying about your sins forgiven, about God's presence, and about trusting him for the future. What we're saying is that's what it means to put your life in God's hands. So I'm going to ask you to stand in about 20 seconds, and I want you to, and the reason I'm going to ask you to stand, the reason I'm going to ask you to say yes to Christ now is because Jesus stood for you. And I don't want, it, it's not a private deal. So, in about 10 seconds, I'm going to do it, and everything in their mother is going to tell you not to. Every demon in hell is going to tell you not to stand for Christ. Now, if you've already stood before, and you know you've already stood before, if you stood 13 times when I do these kinds of things, and I'm not being mad at you, and I'm not trying to even make fun of you, I'm trying to say that um, I understand that concept of wanting to like rededicate yourself to Christ and, you know, say, God, I want to really live for you. 
But if you've never, this is for those people who have never stood and said, you know what, I've never submitted my life. I've never put myself in your hands. I've always thought you were a good idea. I've always said, oh man, you're a righteous guy. I've always witnessed the, the church congregating in a room like this saying, yeah, he's great, but I've never really said, you know, take my life, take my future, take my hopes, take my dreams, take my philosophy, take all of me into all of you. I've never really done that. If that's you, in about five seconds, I'm going to ask you to stand. It's going to happen. Don't, don't, don't say no. Five, four, three, two, one. Stand if you want to surrender. Give your heart to Jesus. I love you, Mike.